Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And also, please be sure to follow Joe and I wherever you find us on social media, we're all over the place, YouTube and Facebook primarily, but now Rumble, Gab, like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell, do all that fun stuff. And uh, and today we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming back to the show, Dr. E. Michael Jones. And for those of you who do not know Dr. Jones, a little bit of, a, of an introduction for the Veritas audience. Uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones is the founder and managing editor of Culture Wars magazine. He has spent the last 40 years as a prolific writer, having written numerous books, in, including Slaughter of Cities, Barren Metal, Libido Dominandi, and The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. We're discussing today his latest work, Logos Rising. And we're going to get into the reasons why uh, why this book is so important and why particularly as Catholics, we need to understand the philosophical underpinnings of our faith. And that's what Dr. Jones does in this book. And, and you're going to, you're going to love the conversation and you're definitely going to want to go out and buy the book. Um, so we'll be discussing Logos Rising. Dr. Jones, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be good to be back. Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Jones, we'll begin with a prayer because all good things start with a prayer, and this is a good thing. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly to you. To you, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To you we come. To you we come. Before you we stand. sorrowful, O Mother of the Word. Incarnate. Despise, despise our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. St. Dominic. Pray for us. So, Dr. Father Jones, we'll get right into it. Um, again, we're going to be talking about Logos Rising. Um, in your book, you start off with a strong argument against atheism, particularly uh, you address the four horsemen. For those who don't know who the four horsemen are, it's Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and the late Christopher Hitchens. Please explain the incoherence of the atheist argument from a philosophical point of view and talk to our listeners about the turtles all the way down idea. Yeah, four, about 10 years ago, the uh, four atheists were a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, their entire argument was based on logical fallacy. Okay, uh, they talked a lot about biology. Biology, Darwinism is basically the, the operating system of, of atheism in our day. It's probably the prime philosophical uh, ideology in our day, and it's incoherent. <clears throat> it's incoherent. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
because uh, if you knew the history of philosophy, you knew that there was a man by the name of Parmenides, and he said that uh, that which is cannot come from that which is not. This was the beginning of a, a movement in human history where people started to understand, waking up from the effects of the fall and the collapse of civilization, and starting to understand the implications of logos, which is the Greek word for reason, which found its culmination when St. John wrote his gospel. And St. John <clears throat> took that Greek language and took that Greek philosophy, and he said, in the beginning, there was Logos. There was never a time when there wasn't some type of rationality out there. And Logos is God. So this is a powerful statement. And the atheist simply uh, turned it bad metaphysics into an attack on uh, attack on uh, God and attack on uh, or the uh, logical underpinning of the universe. So what did they say? Well, they said basically that something can come from nothing. That's exactly the point of Darwinism. If you reduce it to its basics, something can come from nothing. Well, how is this possible? If there were ever nothing, there could never be something. So first of all, they can't talk about the beginning of everything because uh, that's totally incoherent. But they can't talk about their own particular evolutionary development either. So Dawkins, uh, who's probably the smartest of this group of people, uh, says, well, it seems complicated if you try to go from one big step to another. So if you gotta try to go from an amoeba to a monkey, that's a big step. But let's take it gradually, little steps at a time. Problem here is that every little step is exactly as the same as the big step. Because in every little step, you're going from non-existence to existence. Now, he tries to cover this up by saying, well, how about a wing? Uh, wouldn't 49% of a wing be better than no wing at all? Richard, as soon as you're saying a wing, you're already talking about what you're trying to prove. You can't go from a non-wing to a wing. It's impossible. Uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens does the same thing with the eye. It's always a kind of sleight of hand here. Uh, basically, he talks about uh, uh, some organism with light-sensitive cells. Well, they evolved into an eye. Well, wait a minute. Light-sensitive cells, they can either see, in which case it's already an eye, or they can't see, in which case you're never going to get there because there's no way to go from non-existence to existence. This is the metaphysical flaw at the heart of Darwinism, at the heart of atheism. And what you see at this point is that atheism is not, it's not a philosophical problem. It's a psychological problem. Uh, and Paul Vitz, the, the uh, philosopher, psychologist from NYU, wrote a book about this, about the relationship between atheism and father deprivation. That's precisely the case with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, you, this is, means that when you're talking with people who are atheists, you have to switch gears and stop talking about philosophy and start talking about psychology and start talking about the problems that led you to that situation. Now, what Dawkins was proposing, was in some sense, what you're talking about with turtles all the way down. You can't have an infinite regress. That's Aristotle said this. And so you can't have an infinite number of little changes because each of those little changes goes from non-being to being, and that's impossible. You can't do that. Okay. 
Aristotle figured this out. He said, how do you go from non-being to being? Well, it's it, they are in potentia. It's in potential. So obviously there is change. Parmenides couldn't explain change. But Aristotle said, because look, the acorn has the oak in potentia in there. It's already there. And so that solves the, the whole problem with change that Parmenides could not solve. The problem with atheism is that it's bad bad philosophy and the whole point of Logos Rising is to reintroduce a whole generation of people, probably two generations who never got philosophy courses in college, who nobody understands this anymore. And when nobody understands this, the bullies take over. And that's we're talking about people like uh, the, the four atheists there. Let's just get into something you just touched on. Why do you think modern philosophy has taken this route. I mean, you're you you were in academia. Joe and I went to Catholic schools. We had to take I had to take six credits of philosophy core in a Catholic school. Why has philosophy taken this road? Well, it's very simple. Uh, you have to go to Notre Dame University to figure this out. So uh, there's a long history in the book. Uh, Logos makes a rebound in 1879 with uh, the resurgence of Thomism. Uh, uh, Pope Leo XIII issues his encyclical Eterni Patris, which makes Thomism the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. Notre Dame University adopted that document in 1953 and made uh, Thomism the official philosophy of Notre Dame University, tried to position itself as the premier Catholic university in the United States because of that fact. Come here, you'll get a great uh, uh, training in philosophy. Well, there are problems, okay? It's not easy to do this. A lot of it was superficial. A lot of it was simply manuals rather than getting to the actual text, a lot of bad teaching. But the real reason was uh, basically two men, Theodore Hesburgh and Erna McMullen, the Irish uh, physicist he hired to run the philosophy department. And they decided that they were going to kill Thomism. This was one of the great rebirths of Logos in history, beginning with Eterni Patris. Eterni Patris caught, caught on in France with Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gilson, and uh, Gary Goulagange, Father Gary Goulagange. Gilson and Maritain came to America. They saw America as the great hope for uh, the resurgence of philosophy. Maritain tried to get, uh, get a position at the University of Chicago. The anti-Catholics under John Dewey uh, made that impossible. And so Notre Dame became the place, and Notre Dame, the leadership of Notre Dame strangled it. And if you go back to that period of time, I'm talking about the late 60s, Time Magazine is talking about this. You know, oh, isn't Thomism outdated? Shouldn't we have a more scientific? Shouldn't we be more pluralistic? This was all the attempt to destroy Thomism, and they succeeded. And basically, uh, I'm saying Erna McMullen succeeded in strangling Logos in its cradle in America by wrecking the philosophy department at Notre Dame. And Notre Dame had a leading uh, uh, position among Catholic colleges and universities, and it spread throughout there. And now you've got Catholic colleges turning out philosophical ignoramuses, unfortunately. <laughs> You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. And when you have Dr. E. Michael Jones on your show, you are way in the breach. And we're here on the Veritas Catholic Network. Dr. Jones, thank you for that. Because I think it's important. I think what you what we're getting, you know, at least from the way Joe and I see it, 
either on the one end, if you're Catholic, everything is, is personal piety. Uh, on the other end, you got your but you got your Protestants and your evangelicals who say, well, we don't need philosophy. We have scripture. And, and it doesn't seem like anybody wants to bother too much with these 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 major questions. And, and, and let's get into it a little bit. You mentioned St. John. Obviously, before then, God revealed the Logos to the Greeks. It was what are they excluded somehow from God's plan? No, God, the Holy Spirit revealed the Logos to the Greeks. Talk about how the Greeks, the different philosophical ideas they were throwing around in ancient Greece, which led them to the discovery of Logos, which then later on, of course, John puts front and center in his gospel. Right. There, there was a collapse of civilization around 1200 BC. This is a time of the, uh, the, uh, the battle over Troy. Uh, no writing collapsed, civilization collapsed, and then slowly about 400 years after that, it started to make a, a return. And one of the returns was the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey got written down, finally written down in written form, but also uh, in Miletus on the coast of the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea, uh, which is Greek colonies basically in the Persian Empire. These two ideas came together and you started to have people who were trying to figure out, let's see if we can figure out the universe. There seems to be a unity here. And so Thales, uh, the first philosopher says, yeah, it's water. Well, water is important. That's true, especially if you live on the coast. Uh, but there are problems here. Uh, and then so uh, an examiner tried to come and said, no, it's it's air. And that's same. Well, that's true. Air is important. You breathe it in. And if you use the word air, it's spirit. And so it's breath. It's like the soul. This is important. The problem here is that you're handicapped because you're trying to think in physical terms about something which is not physical, which is a reason. And then finally, Heraclitus comes along. Heraclitus is living, probably was a Persian citizen, living there at the, at the intersection of the Greek and the Persian worlds. The Persian religion is Zoroastrianism. It's based on fire, a kind of worship of fire. And so Heraclitus said, yeah, it's fire because fire is energy. And there's this kind of paradox there. A candle flame is always changing. It's always the same. This must be the idea. And then finally, Heraclitus says, it's like Logos. And this is the emergence of a kind of intellectual term that is now independent of any physical entity. And so you're, you, you're, the human race has now broke, has broken with picture thinking. Classic example would be hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics is picture thinking. The word for cat is cat. It's a picture of a cat. That's primitive. This is now much more sophisticated. And that launched this idea into the world. The culmination of that, as I said, was St. John. You're right. God did, God did not abandon the human race after the fall. There was still a plan going on. It's going to be a long, hard slog, but there's God is still there. And part of the preparation is Greek philosophy. Absolutely no question. And I'm saying that the, the Hebrews had a history without philosophy. The Greeks had philosophy without history. And St. John brought them together. Now, I'm saying in this book that the reason John wrote this gospel is because the, you couldn't preach to the Jews anymore. That was over. The Jews had expelled Paul from the synagogue. You had to now preach to the Greeks. Greek is the lingua franca for the entire world at this point. And so St. John says, I'm going to write in Greek. I'm going to write the gospel in Greek. And not only that, 
I'm going to dispense with all these Hebrew genealogies. The Greeks don't know who these people were. So what's the point of talking about them, tracing Jesus back to this guy, David, and so on and so forth. Let's begin with a philosophical, a metaphysical discussion that the Greeks can understand, that the whole world can understand because it's basically based on reason. And so what you have is a, a revision of Genesis. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. St. Paul says, in the beginning, there was Logos. This is for a specifically Greek audience. And I think he had St. Paul's failure at the Areopagus in mind. Paul tried to talk about Jesus Christ to a group of philosophers, and he gave the wrong speech. He gave the Ephesus speech where they were all idol worshipers. And he said, you know, this man, he died, he came back from the dead. And the Greeks said, oh, okay, well, we'll talk about this some other time. And they all walked out. I think John was aware of that failure. And I think he said, now we have to have a sound philosophical foundation for the gospel so that we can preach to the entire world, people who never heard of Jewish prophets or anything like that. That's, that was the great turning point in human history. And at this point, either you got with the plan or the train left the station without you. I mean, clearly philosophy is relevant when you're speaking about God, and I agree with you. You have to have an understanding of that. I knew uh, a, a teacher in philosophy in uh, Calcutta, India. He was a Jesuit, and he would argue the existence of God without using the term, and I think that's what you're talking about. I think when you take away philosophy from a theology, you're missing that. How is it so important and how is it linked? The idea that philosophy points to the absolute truth that is God. Well, what we have now is a truncated idea of philosophy based on science. It's called positivism, whatever you want to call it. But basically they're saying the physical sciences became so powerful in the 19th century that basically everyone said, well, we have to model everything we do on physics. So economics became physics. You want to read that story, read Barron Metal. It's a whole story, history of basically screwing up economics because you think it's making it into pseudo-physics. This crippled philosophy. If you talk Aristotle, when he talks about metaphysics, he, call, he calls it first philosophy and he calls it theology because in metaphysics, you talk about God because you have to talk about God because you can't talk about a beginning unless you talk about God. It's that simple. So I, I had this experience in India myself. I'm in a, a school in Delhi, 16-year-olds, English class. Hindu boy stands up and he says, can you prove the existence of God? Now, why did this Hindu boy say this? Because India is a place where you have 33 million gods. And that doesn't make any sense. And you can talk to any kid there and he will basically admit that doesn't make any sense. You can't have 33 million gods. And so he wants to know, can you bring science and religion together? Well, yeah, you can with, with philosophy because in India, you don't have it. I went from the temple of Ganesh where you, the chubby little guy with the elephant <laughs> standing line and you offer him some type of thing, uh, offering, and then they give you something back and you whisper your prayers into a big silver mouse and that silver mouse runs off to Krishna and then you get what you want. And I went from there to the Nehru Science Center, same city, okay? And there's, uh, you're waiting to get in and there's a mural of the history of the universe, okay? 
guess what the first, the beginning of the history of the universe is? Atoms formed. Well, wait a minute, atoms formed? You mean, you mean happened? This, this is not an explanation. And so you got these poor Indians with a completely irrational religion and you, a completely irrational science when it comes to metaphysics. Well, that's not going to be nourishing to anybody. So I had to prove the existence of God to this kid. I said, nothing comes from nothing. There is something. Therefore, there was never nothing. This something cannot bring itself into existence because to do that, it would have to exist before it existed. Therefore, something else brought it into existence. And that something is what all men call God. Now, you want to talk about the stupidest statement in the history of philosophy. It was made by one of those four, four atheists, the only philosopher among the groups, Daniel Dennett, who said, the universe created itself out of nothing or something very small. That has got to be the stupidest statement that any, everyone, anyone ever made about anything philosophical. The universe cannot bring itself into existence because it would have to exist before it existed. That's impossible. So now that we've cleared that out of the way, we can talk about the fact that metaphysics talks about God in a way that is mandatory for every rational creature. It's mandatory to believe in God. Otherwise, you're a fool. You cannot have a universe without God. Now, it's not mandatory to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You accept that by faith. But this is a big step in the right direction. And I am making progress in India because you've got over a billion and a half people in a completely confused state. So an Indian comes to me and I overtook over the internet, you know, I said, there's no Logos in India. Well, what do you mean by that? I said, look at your, look at your cosmology. It's the earth is a semicircle. It's sitting on four elephants and the elephant's standing on a turtle. I said, what's the turtle standing on? Well, he couldn't answer that question. There is an answer on the internet. It's called turtles all the way down, but that's the infinite regress that we already talked about. That's impossible. Okay, because he couldn't answer that, he became a Catholic. Now, this is big. This is a big breakthrough. St. Saint, Saint Francis Xavier went to India. After six months, he threw up his hands and said, this is impossible. Nobody can talk to these people. And he went to Japan because you, at least you talk to the Japanese because they understood something about the, uh, the universe. This is significant. This is a way of talking to people all over the world about the most fundamental issue we all face, namely the relationship between God and creation. You know something, you said something very interesting. Something can't come from nothing. And that Indian gentleman was honest with himself and he clearly came to the realization that something came from God. Um, clearly, people rationalize this, particularly very smart people, because it's something that we can't completely understand. It's a mystery. God is a mystery, even to the smartest people. Talk a little bit about that. Like, I think of a very funny statement, a friend of mine once said, if you can't lie to yourself, who could you lie to? And ultimately, it comes down to that. The atheist, like, lies to himself, because what you just said is completely linear and logical. How could you not conclude that something has to come from something, and that something is God. 
Well, you're, you're talking about the wrong book right now. You want to know why people are atheists? Read Degenerate Moderns. Uh, because uh, in the intellectual life, there are two choices. Either you conform your desires to the truth or you conform the truth to your desires. And so it was all the Suxley and ends and means who talked about. The reason all my friends are communists is because Marxism allows you to have sex with anybody you want because there's no meaning in the world. That's the reason. It, it all comes down to that. You, you, you have a desire and you want to fulfill that desire, you know it's wrong. And so therefore you're going to question the whole order of the universe in order to make sure that you can do what you want to do. Now, this is not just personal biographies of modern figures. Wilhelm Schmidt, the great uh, divine word anthropologist said that all primitive cultures are monotheistic. The polytheism is a sign of decadence. It always comes in later. Why is there polytheism? Well, because you want to do something and you know God doesn't want you to do it. So, okay, I really have this desire to sleep with my neighbor's wife. Well, I can't pray to God for that. Well, maybe I can pray to someone else. And at this point you have polytheism because you're praying to demons. That's what you're praying to. And so you have a whole demon-based culture. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to argue against the faith of these primitive people. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say that because they probably don't understand what they're doing. It came into, if you're talking about India, this came into existence millennia ago. I mean, we're talking about a long time ago here. So, but th that's, that's, that's the issue. The fundamental issue is, are you willing to conform your life to Logos? Well, no, <laughs> obviously a lot of people are not willing to do that. And because we're rational creatures, we have to come up to, with some type of justification for why we're not doing it. And then we end up with Darwinism, of course, Darwinism, it's, or, or whatever, any of these atheistic ideologies. Does it strike you, Dr. Jones, you're with the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinolo, having a fascinating conversation on Logos Rising, the history of ultimate reality with Dr. E. Michael Jones. Please, everybody, go out there and buy his book. It is very, very informative. You will be glad that you did. Doctor, one of the things that Joe and I do on the show all the time, we only have a couple minutes before the great break, but I'd love for you to comment on this. I think one of our problems in America is that everybody's looking for political solutions to let's say problems that are essentially moral and have to do with the fact that nobody, Joe always says on the show, I think it's akin to what you just said about, uh, you know, what, you know, what needing to change your life. If you accept Logos, that means that you have to conform your life to that Logos. I think one of the problems in America, I was going to save this for later is that nobody wants to bend the knee. In other words, to, see, to bend the knee means very simply that you have to accept that there is a certain truth. Catholics know that truth is Jesus Christ, okay? And that means something for your life. Like you said about, well, if I want to sleep with my neighbor, I can't really, I can't really go to a Catholic church because the priest is going to tell me no. The problem in America is we're looking in the wrong places for the solutions, okay? Particularly in political parties, right or left, okay? Just more egregious on the left right now. What's your take on that? I got a couple minutes because then we're going to have more about, we want to talk about the Trinity after the break. But, but the need to understand that these philosophical ideas that you're talking about, you're putting forth logos, and the fact that it's rising, that means something for our lives. And that means something for the world and for our country. Yeah, well, we're talking about reason. There's pure reason, which allows you to uh, know the truth, but there's practical reason, which allows you to achieve the good. And practical reason is known as morality. 
And so if you want to achieve the good, you have to conform your life to, these, to this practical reason. Now, the founding fathers knew this. John Adams said, we have no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. That is the fundamental truth of democracy. Okay, if you can't conform your life to practical reason, to the moral law, how are you going to have a government that's going to do that? If you can't do it to yourself, how can a man impose it on other people? That's precisely what happened over this period of time. That basically freedom got defined as doing what you want to do as opposed to what you ought to do. And this, this fundamental ambiguity was there at the beginning, and it got worse and worse over this period of time. It's that simple, okay? License became the, uh, the, uh, the substitute for freedom. Right, and, and, and that's un unfortunately uh, one of our constant themes on the show all the time at the front line with Joe and Joe, Dr. Jones, is this, this, this perverted concept of freedom, which is not true freedom, has also become it has become an idol in and of itself. So you get, let's say, for argument's sake, I heard you mention uh, in an in an interview recently about traditional Latin mass going Catholics that don't want to hear anything about the social compendium of the Catholic Church. It's a perfect example of how, like, in other words, you know, it's always on certain things people don't want to bend the knee. So what on the on the right, it's economics. I don't want to hear what the Catholic Church has to say about economics. On the left, it's about sexual immorality or morality. Okay. Nobody, nobody seems to want to hear it. And that's why we're glad that you came on the show. We're going to have to take a break real quick, but we're talking about Logos rising. Dr. E. Michael Jones has written a 900-page book that you gotta go out there and you gotta you have to buy and you have to absorb. You have to you have to read these concepts. It's important for us as Catholics, okay, to understand this. So we're going to come back. We're at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, thirteen fifty on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. We'll mention it again before the end of the show. Remember, the book is Logos Rising: A History of Ultimate Reality. Real quick, Dr. Jones, uh, folks could buy the book where? Go to fidelitypress.org. Fidelitypress.org. Don't go to Amazon. Go to fidelitypress.org and you'll be able to buy the book. Right there. Excellent. Culturewars.com. Culturewars.com. Yes. Both sites will take you to this book. Excellent. And I, yes, I also highly recommend Culture Wars magazine. You should subscribe to it. I do. I think you should. Hang on. We'll be right back at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Hey. You know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the Focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Priscillo and Joe Resinello, way in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area, having a fascinating conversation with Dr. E. Michael Jones. We're discussing Dr. Jones' most recent book, which is Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. Dr. Jones, everyone says in, in basically the modern dialogue that the idea that science is opposed to religion, and that, and that clearly is, is a fallacy and a mistake. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Gospel of John, and he establishes in it the Trinity. I know this is a very big question. Augustine wrestled with it. What is the Trinity, and how is this concept of God, a triune God, basically lead to the development of science itself. And why is this argument when people say science is opposed to God completely and utterly false? Well, it, uh, it goes back to, uh, again, to the Gospel of St. John, the prologue. In the beginning, there was Logos, and then he says, and Logos was with God, and Logos is God. And for a long time, I thought, why don't you just leave that second sentence out? It's just too complicated to say that. But what he's talking about there is the Trinity. So it's basically you're talking about uh, a meditation on that phrase and also the word son in the gospel. And you're talking about 300 years of meditation on that concept so that you can come up with a understanding of God as close as God understands himself. The proof of the existence of God is it's us understanding God. The Trinity is God revealing himself to us, okay? And that, that's what took place over this period of time. Now, there was preparation for this. Uh, as we said, just like the word Logos, Pythagoras uh, prepared us for the Trinity because he talked about <clears throat> one. Pythagoras could believe that number was the order of the universe. So let's talk about one. What is one? One is unity. Unity is a characteristic of God. Two. What is two? Two is diversity. Two is the, uh, the unity of God expressing itself in matter, which is the universe. What is one plus two? That's three. And what is three? It's the Trinity. That is unity and diversity at the same time. Now, this becomes important uh, because one of the characteristics of God, it's called a transcendental, is beauty. A being it has three main characteristics, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And we've often neglected the beautiful, largely because of the decline in art that has taken place in the 20th century. Okay, that is exactly the definition of beauty as well. It's unity in diversity, and that's the topic of the book I just finished. So this is the sequel to Logos Rising, where Logos is about metaphysics. This is a book about aesthetics and about how beauty is a manifestation of God as well, okay? But th there you have the preparation for that. One plus two equals three, and then suddenly you begin to realize there is this three, evidence of this three, of this trinity throughout creation. And that's part of the preparation uh, as well of what is going on. Now, once this, now again, there was a struggle here. There's a whole, if you want the struggle, uh, a combination of two books, 
is the recent history of the Aryan crisis that I just wrote for the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. That was a battle over what is the relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father. Arius said if the, fa if the Son uh, comes after the Father, there was a time when the Son was not. If there was a time when the Son was not, the Son is not God. So therefore, Jesus Christ is not God. That's a very persuasive argument from my point of view. Problem is, it's not true because you're taking the term Son and you're applying it in an analogous way to God where it simply doesn't apply because all three of those principles were co-eternal and always existed in relationship to each other. Now, that's a really sophisticated point. And one of the groups that did not get this were, were the Muslims. Islam got its idea of Christ, Jesus Christ, from the Nestorian heretics, and they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. And as a result, this had serious consequences for intellectual development. Now you think, well, who cares? That's a theological point. What's that got to do with science? Well, it's got a lot to do with science. And it's the main reason that science did not develop in the Islamic world, even though they had Aristotle centuries before he appeared in the West. Because once you, the sun is God, the incarnation has a special type of meaning. It means that God is suffused throughout the universe. It means that the universe is a manifestation of God. And that brings about secondary causality. You can study the universe and you can come up with truths about God and about reality, independent of revelation. The, the Muslims never figured this out. They never, I, I was in Mashhad trying to talk to uh, a mullah there uh, in, uh, in Iran and Golestan talking about the wheel. I'm trying to get to let's, something we can agree on. Let's talk about the wheel because this is where the wheel was invented a long time ago, 10,000 years ago. He interrupts me. He says to me, no, no, that's not true. He said, uh, I said, well, how did the wheel come into existence? He said, a prophet explained how to build the wheel. I said, a prophet? Wait a minute, this is, this is 12,000 years before Islam. Who is the prophet? How did this happen? How do you know this? He said, it's in the Hadith, which is the commentary on the Quran. This is the type of sola scriptura attitude makes Luther look sophisticated by comparison, and it crippled Islamic thought. So you ended up with Averroes who simply said, you know, Aristotle says the world is eternal. The Quran says it was created because obviously Quran is based on Genesis. So what do I say? Well, they're both right. Aristotle is true if you're talking about philosophy. Uh, 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 the Quran is true if you're talking about theology. They're both right. This is the end of thought. You can't violate the principle of non-contradiction like this. And the, that's exactly what happened to Islamic thought. It has to be a fundamentalism. That's all it's ever going to be. And that is precisely the crisis right now in a place like Iran. They're gonna to have to come to grips with Logos. I wrote this book because of the years I spent talking to people in Iran and places like India. This is the way you can talk to people because Logos is mandatory if you're a rational creature. You know, I, I want to just touch on this because everything you say is very linear. It is. It's linear. And I could see the follow. One thing, one thought follows to the next. 
the sad reality is people are in camps. You talked about, you're talking to this Muslim gentleman. You could talk to someone on the political left. You could lay something out perfectly linear. They're not open to it. Talk about the heart a little bit. I'm interested in your view because your arguments are very linear. If you have an open heart, I'll be honest with you, you got to say what you just said is right. Sadly, people don't. Talk about the openness of heart to accepting linear truth. Well, I've already talked about the fundamental problem. If you have, if you have based your life on, on, on uh, gratifying your irrational passions, you're not going to be open to this argument. Uh, Aquinas said, lust that darkens the mind. That's, that's the problem. You're dealing with people who are, who are sunken in sin, uh, who have made a living out of being uh, beating uh, on one of these ideologies. I just did a debate with Jared Taylor over racism. It's a completely irrational ideology. There's a difference between, I think, Jared Taylor, who's made a living by promoting this white racism, and Frody Mitjord, who is the Norwegian guy who organized the, uh, the conference. Frody uh, grew up at a time, he was baptized as a Lutheran. He grew up uh, in a period when the Lutheran church simply evaporated. In Scandinavia, it evaporated as the state church in Norway and he had an identity crisis and he didn't know where else to go other than to say he was white. Well, that's not your identity. I'm saying this is just one example of how people can get frozen into a, an ideology. And sometimes they get so frozen that they're never going to come back. I think Frody is, is open to this idea. The fact that he raised this debate means that he feels that there's something missing. There are always people out there who are open. No matter, They never write in the comm box. They never write you a letter to the editor. The only people who write in comm boxes are people who are trying to defend their obsolete ideologies. If you just look at the comm box, you're not getting the full picture. The full picture comes, you know, when you get an email, you know, uh, what I told you about the guy in India, it's still happening. I, 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 I was on a talk show and I'm saying, yeah, I was on the banks of the Ganges River in Mumbai. And some guy writes to me and he says, wait a minute, the Ganges flows through Calcutta. Of course it flows through Calcutta. I made this stupid mistake. God used that mistake to get this guy to talk to me. And now this guy is on his way. He's talking about Logos now. I'm saying there's that's happening across the world. That's why I called the book Logos Rising. Do you find, Dr. Jones, in your experience, in your travels, that let's say the non-Christian, let's say predominantly Muslim world, that they are, that, that that would be the means by which, as, as let's call it Catholic evangelization, okay, to introduce people to the Catholic faith, to get them to, you know, to pique their interest. Is Logos an effective means to speak to these people? Now, I don't mean it in a way, we know it's an effective means. Are they open to it in your travels and, and, yeah. and in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I had a long, long conversation with uh, a Muslim woman. In the beginning, I said, look, I don't, do not want to engage in Catholic-Muslim dialogue. I said, I'm interested in unprotected intercourse. That's it. We'll just talk. We'll just be honest with each other. And this is the way this progressed for years. I learned a lot from her. I think she learned a lot from me. And, uh, you know, she said at a certain point, she said, yeah, I agree with what you said about Logos. And then she's, you know, she's in this position where she's not, you know, we're all going through something bad happens, you feel depressed, you're wondering what it's all about. Is there any way forward? I said, yeah, of course there's a way forward. 
uh, it's called uh, the Catholic faith. If you're asking me, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to deny this truth to you. So she says, well, what do I have to do? And I said, well, you have to get baptized. And she flies into a rage. She's enraged at the sun. What's that got to do with Logos? You mean pouring some water on my forehead is going to change uh, anything? Well, yeah. There's a, what I'm trying to say here is uh, there's a gap. There's always going to be a gap. And you can persuade people on Logos on purely rational grounds. But when they say, what must I do to be saved? You have to switch into another mode because you can't be saved simply by by uh, professing logos. You have to accept the logos incarnate. Now, they, Saint John made that as smooth that transition as smooth as possible. It's really smooth, but it's still a transition, and there's no way to get around it. All right. Well, th thank you for that, Doctor E. Michael Jones is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Rosanello, and we are way in the breach. We recommend Doctor Jones's book, which we are discussing today. Logos Rising, the history of ultimate reality. Joe, we probably, because because we always want to give Dr. Jones a chance to really flesh out some of these questions in an hour, quite frankly, is just not long enough with Dr. E. Michael Jones. However, um, I definitely would like, Joe, if you, it's okay with you to get to Luther. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and definitely if we could, which we did not the last time, maybe if we could get to the 19th century and talk a little bit about about Nietzsche and the and the collapse of German idealism. So I'm going to hand it over to Joe, Dr. Jones. Well, clearly, uh, I mean, as far as Christianity goes, Luther caused a lot of trouble, and it's a significant break. Luther had some issues. Many of those issues were legitimate, clearly. The 95 Theses, he put them on the door of the church. But what is the problem with basically... I guess his disdain for reason, his theology. Let's talk about like the root problem of Luther's theology. And what was his doctrine of the enslaved will? Okay, the, the main problem uh, in the Middle Ages is the collapse of Thomism and its replacement with nominalism. Uh, William of Ockham was an English uh, monk uh, he was on the lamb uh, from one bishop after another. He ended up in Munich uh, in uh, 1354. Bad time to show up in Munich because he's there at the same time as the Black Death, and he dies of the Black Death. Uh, I was in the Franciscan monastery. I had dinner in the Franciscan monastery where he died. It wasn't a very appetizing thought, but that's the way. <laughs> But anyway, so what did what did William Ockham say? Well, there there uh, all there are no universals. Universals are all categories of the mind, which means all we're doing is projecting our understanding onto God, who is completely unknowable. Well, this is Islam. This is this is the return. This is Islam taking over uh, Catholic philosophy. And uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Ockham had huge influence in Germany. And one of the people that was schooled under his uh, tutelage, uh, the school was Martin Luther, uh, who uh, was a, okay, there was a philosoph, the grounds had been prepared philosophically because now God is unknowable. Uh, and so all you can have is personal devotion, but no metaphysic. Well, that's not gonna last. And that's what you ended up with Luther. Now, it's compounded by the fact that Luther was a guy who could never control his passions. He was, a, he was a violent guy. He probably ended up in a monastery because he killed somebody. Uh, he, he drank a lot. He did not say his prayers. 
And then when he broke with the church and they stuck him in the Vartborg, the, the, the Reformation is a looting operation. The princes ran it. Martin Luther didn't. They kidnapped him, put him in the Vartborg, told him to translate the Bible into German. And now he's subjected to severe sexual temptation. And eventually he caves in and he gets a nun. Now, the, 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 the Lutherans at this time were... Uh, basically breaking into convents and dragging the nuns out and either raping them themselves or uh, offering them to uh, other uh, priests to get them to join. And Luther, in this regard, offered up the best-looking nun of the last group we just took out of the convent to the Archbishop of Mainz. Now, someone who offers a woman for sexual purposes to another man is known as a pimp. I, I don't want to uh, badmouth pimps by comparing them to Martin Luther, but this is what's going on here. So, but Martin Luther is an intelligent guy. And so what, I, again, it's, it's degenerate moderns. The chapter on Luther is in degenerate moderns where he decided, okay, if I did it, it must be right. And so I'm gonna conform reality to my desires. And so he writes the enslaved will, which means you don't have any free will. Well, we, we're back to Islam again here. And this has a cat catastrophic effect on theolo theology and intellectual development. So fast forward to uh, the beginning of the 19th century, you have a guy named Hegel, who was uh, a Lutheran studying theology uh, uh, at a seminary. And uh, the, he's 19 years old when the French Revolution breaks out. He moves to Jena and suddenly all of his buddies, Schelling, uh, the whole the romantic circle, they're all involved in free love at Jena and he succumbs and he ends up uh, having uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what a dignified calling affair, but he has sex with his chambermaid. Okay, now he's writing the phenomenology of the spirit at this point, which is basically his attempt to align the Trinity with the Enlightenment. Well, that's not a bad idea. I've already told you that Pythagoras anticipated the Trinity, so go for it. Well, the problem is the best preparation for meditating on the Trinity, which is above human reason, is not sleeping with your chambermaid. Bad idea, because the passions will cloud the mind. And so what happened here is that Hegel wrecked his own project. He wrecked his own project because when he's consumed with guilt, what does he do? Well, he falls back on Luther and uh, the enslaved will. He falls back on that tradition and suddenly he turns, introduces necessity into the dialectic, which is his word for the Trinity. You cannot introduce necessity into the Trinity. You can't do it. If you do it, you will end up with something very different. And the, and the man who understood this perfectly was Feuerbach, who was a student of Hegel. He said, look, the Trinity, the dialectic functions all by itself because of negativity. And the man who took Feuerbach and, and weaponized it even further was Karl Marx. And you have dialectical materialism, which is a contradiction in terms. That shows you the consequences of basically uh, uh, tampering with reason, which is what William Ockham did, and weaponizing the Trinity, which is what Hegel did. It seems, Dr. Jones, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Rosanello, way in the breach, Dr. E. Michael Jones discussing his most recent book, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, which we recommend everyone go out there and, and purchase and read. Um, Doc, I heard you say uh, in prior interviews, I'd love for you to talk about this and then maybe we'll have a little bit of time to talk about Nietzsche also. Um, 
how you you go out of your way to, to make it clear you can't study some of these people's ideas hegel marx luther without looking at their personal life um talk about that a little bit what is let's say for argument's sake somebody might be listening and say well hegel hegel you know went to bed with his chambermaid what does that mean what does that mean for the dialectic let's say i could hear people asking that question why is it important to look at how a person lives their life when they're putting forth these ideas that they're trying to convince other people are true well because all of uh truth has to come through your mind and you you can think of your mind as basically uh like an aperture like an opening uh and uh, uh let's say you've got a, a window you pull the shade down and you put a pinhole in the window okay well that's going light's going to come through but it's not going to be a whole lot of light and it's going to be a very specific kind of light and that's precisely what you do to your mind when you violate the principles of practical reason Aquinas, specifically with lust, uh, Aquinas said lust darkens the mind. So basically, you're you're pulling. First of all, you're pulling down the shade, and then if there's a little pinhole, you're kind of uh, uh, saying the part is the whole. This is always the problem with these people. It's a problem right now. Trying to talk to anybody, you can talk to the white boys, you can talk to the Latin masters, you can talk to the to the Medjugorje crowd. You can talk. It's all little pinholes. That are trying, there people are trying to claim that's everything. That's the whole thing. If you don't understand my little pinhole, you don't understand anything. That's the problem here. You've deliberately foreclosed the fullness of the truth for some type of pinhole. And a lot of times it's better to have a pinhole if you want to mobilize people and get them to give you contributions because you can scratch them where they itch. And that's that's the problem with Catholicism right now. Okay, the authority of the bishops. Uh, the, the strangling of Thomism at Notre Dame has led to a dumbing down of the entire hierarchy and clergy. And as a result, people are looking for answers other places. And lots of guys are ready to volunteer their pinholes as the explanation of everything. I think you nailed it right on the head. I was going to say, I, that, that, I haven't truth. heard it put that way. And, and that seems to be exactly right. We're looking at a bunch of pinholes rather than opening our eyes to the fullness of the truth. And, and, and it, it's, 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 I never, again, I, it's, it's, I can't tell you enough. It's like the way you describe that just opened my eyes so much. That's what everybody's doing nowadays. Because no, well, we got about, I just we probably got about that, that, five minutes, Joe. Okay, just please. To give you heads up, we got, I want to hand it over to you, but remember, we got about five, five, five and a half minutes. That uh, pinhole is everyone's identity. You see, that's the problem. That's exactly the point. We have identity politics now in the Catholic Church. The problem is identity politics, and all you do is pander to a particular group. And that way you have your little fiefdom, and everybody else gets ignored, and you don't, you can't talk to anybody. You can't talk to the world at large. That's the point of Logos. Logos is for everybody. It's not just for Hindus. It's not just for Latin masters. It's not just, it's for, let's talk about, have a, let's have a conversation with the entire world. That's the situation we're in right now. We have the internet, we have English language, and suddenly we have to say something more than uh, how much does it cost and I'll buy three of them. We have to have a more sophisticated vocabulary, and that's what this book, what I try to provide in this book. 
Well, you don't try, Duck Jones. You you succeed, and the book is Logos Rising. Uh, so, Joe, let's hand it over to you, uh, and we'll, we have time for for one more question. Let's talk a little bit about Nietzsche. Um, you know, briefly, describe the collapse of German idealism. A, a lot of times, atheists point to Nietzsche. He's like their hero. Let's break that down a little bit. Yeah, well, Hegel died in 1830, Goethe died in 1831, and the grand narrative collapsed. This Hegel was nothing if he's not the grand narrative. It was the culmination of German idealism. Schelling lived for another 20 years, but he just got lost in pantheism. And so as a result, you have the collapse of the grand uh, historical narrative, the grand philosophical narrative, the guy who's going to explain everything to you. Uh, well, no, it's too big now. And at the same time, you got the rise of all sorts of technological breakthroughs. I mean, during this period of time, the movement in England went from as fast as you could ride on a horse to a steam engine going close to 60 miles an hour. Everybody was dumbfounded. And so materialism set in. And that was basically the end of any type of philosophical thought. Now, materialism will manifest itself in different ways in different places. So England is going to be different than Germany. And uh, the, the, the main, again, the classic example of, uh, uh, let me take a step back. Hegel was born in 1770. Beethoven was born in 1770. They were both reacting to the French Revolution and Napoleon. And Beethoven came up with a form of art that was incredibly powerful in speaking to the world as it existed. And the man who inherited that mantle was Wagner. And Wagner took it, and he's a classic degenerate modern. So he's, uh, he, you read Dionysus Rising if you want to know the story of Wagner. Uh, but basically, uh, he su su subjected that great breakthrough in uh, musical mimesis, which began with Bach, uh, with the well-tempered clavier, the subduing. Uh, this is getting too complicated. Okay, Nietzsche is a disciple of Wagner. We can go and talk about music in detail in another program, but Nietzsche is a disciple of Wagner, and he succumbed to sexual liberation when he listened to Tristan and Isolde. And the, which is Wagner's opera, uh, sexual liberation opera. And the result was, I think this is true, Nietzsche deliberately affected himself with syphilis. And as a result, he, you could, you could, he went crazy at the end of his life. But he opened up the idea that basically uh, logos doesn't mean anything anymore. It's a meaningless term. Didn't show why that was. So when that's meaningless, all we have is will. And will becomes important. And that's the only thing that we talk about. And that is basically the basis of all modern ideology. Foucault. Well, do you, Dr. E. Michael Jones, do you think that what we're living in right now, I mean, this could sound like an oversimplification, the practical application of the transvaluation of values and yeah. the antidote to which is logos. Right, that's exactly what happened. Nietzsche, the transvaluation of all values uh, means that what was good uh, is now bad and what was bad is now good. Well, yeah, I mean, sodomy is basically the noblest thing anybody can do anymore. This is a classic example of the inversion of values that took place uh, over the course of the 20th century. And Nietzsche was uh, in many ways the father of it. Excellent. And, and, and obviously that's, that's why, I mean, look, look, I, you mentioned sodomy. I would say an, a, another one is pornography. Um, 
And I, I would love for you to spend a minute on the need for Logos in this fight against this idea that pornography is somehow some innocuous activity that doesn't really affect people. Spend a minute on that, Dr. Jones, and then tell people where they could find you, your book, Culture Wars Magazine, and everything else. But the need to combat pornography, which is anti-Logos. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I wrote uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. I wrote it 25 years ago. But then in 2019, it reached a whole new generation of people who had grown up watching pornography. I'm talking what, whatever they're called, the Zoomers or whatever they're called, that generation. And all I had to say to them was uh, pornography is a form of social control. And they understood it immediately because they were all enslaved to their passions. I didn't have to I didn't have to beat them over the head. And that became real serious. And it led to uh, no fab November in the fall of 2019. And then what you had after that was the counterattack uh, uh, basically against uh, me and against anybody on the Internet who disagreed. The whole hate speech uh, campaign, the ADL, that's what led uh, to that. But that was a crucial moment because once you said that, uh, you don't have to say anything else. Once you said that sexual liberation is a form of political control, you killed pornography. Now, it's, it's a bad habit. You can become addicted to it. So it's not that simple. But there are people who told me, wrote back to me and said, as soon as you said that, I stopped watching pornography. because I Dr. Jones, we're gonna, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. It's it, it, really, unfortunately. But we want to thank, thank Dr. E. Michael Jones for joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello on the Veritas Catholic Network. Doc, where can people buy Logos Rising? Go to fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Excellent. Dr. Jones, we want to thank you very much. And thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. Please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, wherever you find us. Go out, buy Dr. Jones's book. I read the whole thing, all right? It's 900 pages. It's worth every penny. And you're going to come away with, with, with a lot in your arsenal. Logos is rising, okay? So equip yourself, go out and buy Dr. Jones' book. Dr. Jones, thank you again. And remember all until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.